0: wanna open your Bibles to First Samuel. First Samuel chapter one. Typically I'm not big on preaching to a holiday or to a special event, but I want to preach a Mother's Day message. So praise the Lord. So you know in case you didn't know this, who knows when Mother's Day was first celebrated. Well I mean you can take it clear back to the ancient Greeks, but I'm talking about America. It started back in 1908 and Anna Jarvis is the lady's name that got it started. St. Andrew's Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia. The daughter was Anna. Her mother was Anne. Her mother, Anne, was big in helping out Civil War casualties, both North and South. So the daughter wanted to honor her mother. Her mother actually also started a school to train mothers in how to be godly mothers when she died the daughter wanted to honor her mother and she said all mothers because a mother is the person who has done more for you than anyone else in the world now women that was like the best chance to get an amen in. i will do it again i'll reverse it i'll read it again and it should be a high-pitched amen so let me say it again a mother is the person who has done more for you than anyone else in the world amen Got even the guys squeaking out of David there, right? So that was uh, the first time it was celebrated. Well, she took it to Congress. She's a persistent woman, and she proposed to make Mother's Day an official holiday. But they joked because they said, if we have a special holiday called Mother's Day, we're also going to have to have Mother-in-Law's Day. <laughs> and I ran across this joke, the penalty for bigamy, you know what the penalty is for bigamy? Two mothers-in-law. I thought that was funny. So she persisted, this woman persisted. By 1911, all of the states in the Union observed the holiday. And it was in 1914, and we're getting down to the end of this little background, all right? Woodrow Wilson, he wasn't known for anything else. He signed a proclamation designating Mother's Day, it's always the second Sunday in May, and he designated it as a national holiday. So y'all need to put some flowers on Woodrow Wilson's grave. If you can find it, I don't know where it is. Well, he's buried somewhere. But anyways, that's how it all got started, and here we are today. I think we would all agree mothers are the universal heroes. They just are. You can find all kinds of quotes about men that made it, what they attributed to their mother. For instance, my mother was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. All I am I owe to my mother. I attribute all my success in life to the moral moral intellectual and physical education i received from her george washington said that i'll give you one other quote washington irving he was a famous writer back in the day and he said this i thought this was good and he said a father may turn his back on his child brothers and sisters may become enemies husbands may desert their wives and wives their husbands but a mother's love endures through all In good repute, in bad repute, in the face of the world's condemnation, a mother still loves on and still hopes that her child may turn from his evil ways and repent. Still, she remembers the infant smiles that once filled her bosom with rapture, the merry laugh, the joyful shout of his childhood, the opening promise of his youth, and she can never be brought to think him all unworthy. In other words, a mom just doesn't give up on her. Son, no matter how bad he gets now i don't know if that's always the case but probably was the case more so a hundred years ago than it is today the world we live in today doesn't think much of a woman that is a homemaker or a mere housewife what do you do i mean you're almost in this culture you're almost half embarrassed to say well I'm, i'm a housewife someone that gives her lives to raise her children maintain a home it's actually mocked in our Western culture today. But what we need to remember is God, though, hasn't changed his mind and he hasn't changed his standards. Motherhood is still the highest calling that can be given a woman. The highest calling God can give a woman. If you would, I got you in First Samuel. I shouldn't have had you start there, but just put your pen there. We will be back there for most of the time. But if you would, turn over to Titus 2, please. I just want to look at that to remind ourselves. It is a high calling. It's God's calling. And verse 4, and it says in Titus 2.4, Paul exhorts the older women that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet. And that means you're in control of yourself. You're prudent, you're thoughtful, you're going to make good decisions. In other words, discreet means you are a sensible woman. So it says to be discreet, chaste, and that means you should be pure. Or holy is really what the word is, the root. And a now people today would choke on this, but a homemaker, and that word just means carrying out household duties. Household duties. Good. Women should be good, and the young women obedient to their own husbands. They gag on that today. And Why? So that the word of God may not be blasphemed. In other words, the world's watching people that say they're Christians and what they say the Bible teaches and all. They're looking to see, are you really living what you're saying? And Paul's saying that's the way a woman, a godly woman should be so that the word of God, because that is what the word of God teaches that a woman should be so that it's not blasphemed or put down. And since we're right there in Titus, if you would just turn back just a little bit to first Timothy 510. Actually, we'll start in verse nine. It says, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number and not unless this should have been her life. She has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she has done what? Brought up children. Wow. If she's lodged strangers, if she has watched the saints feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. We just looked at two places where that is when God paints a picture, that is his picture of motherhood, of a woman, of a godly woman. That's what God has designed for a woman to be. Now, I don't know if I had to say this, wouldn't have to say this, but you won't find that description given on The View. I don't watch The View. I know about what The View is about. But Whoopi Goldberg, she would not agree much with that, I don't think. She would probably think that was a joke. But anyways, the Bible's filled with examples, isn't it, all throughout of godly women. And Sarah's the one that starts it all off. It's late in life that she has her child, but she still is the model for a godly woman. She's the model of submission. If you want to read 1 Peter 3, we're not going to read all of it, but in 1 Peter 3, when it talks about submission, it says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughter you are, if you do good and have no fear in doing so. And have you ever wondered, I have, have you ever wondered when it refers to, when it says Sarah obeyed him, calling him Lord, what that's referring to? And actually what it's referring to is Genesis eighteen twelve. And I thought this was interesting because what that is going on there, this is when Genesis eighteen twelve 12, Sarah's over here in the conversation that the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, is having With Abraham and telling him that Sarah, your wife, will have a son, and we know then that Sarah laughed, didn't she, when she heard that? And it says this, it says, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also. And that's what Peter's referring to. So what he's pointing out and referring to that is that Sarah showed respect to Abraham, even though she thought this miracle that they say is going to happen is crazy. So in other words, she still was respecting him. She's like, how am I going to have a child and have pleasure when I'm old? And my Lord, she didn't say like would probably be today. I'm this old. I'm going to have pleasure. And that old goat's going to have pleasure, too. And she didn't say that, did she? She thought it was all crazy, but you can hear her respect there and her submission to what God is doing, because she did submit to it, didn't she, even though she laughed then. And that's what Peter's saying. And there's your model, women. She didn't get smart. She was willing to submit. And also we know that Sarah had great faith in God. Hebrews 11.11 11 says, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age Because she judged him faithful who had promised. All we usually hear about is Abraham for the most part, right? Except for on Mother's Day. But Abraham didn't conceive and deliver that baby all by himself, did he? (laughs) I mean, Sarah was involved and not only involved, she had to have faith too. Not only in the conception, but you think, you know, I've seen, I haven't experienced it, but women could probably give a testimony of what is involved in delivering a baby it's no small process and i'm saying at 99 years old i guarantee you so she had to have faith that god would give her the strength to do that mm-hmm. and she did and it moves on from her and then you could go on and on i'm not covering every woman that i could but you see the faith and love that Jochebed Moses' moses's mother her and miriam they risked their lives to save his life didn't they and the love of the mother that motherly love was reproduced in her daughter Deborah in the book of Judges she claimed that God raised her up to be a mother in Israel she had a mother's heart for Israel in delivering them and then just before what we're talking about in Samuel in Judges Ruth the Moabitess followed Naomi and her God and when she did that when she forsook all and followed the God of Naomi, which is really who she was after, and Naomi. But because of that, her faith, her loyalty, her humility, and her love for the God of Israel was rewarded. How? How did God reward her? She became the mother of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David, who was in the seed of Jesus. in the flesh that's where Jesus came from and that's how God rewarded a godly mother a godly woman she was grafted into the vine wasn't she Ruth the Moabitess you move into the New Testament and you have Elizabeth the godly righteous mother of John the Baptist cousin to the humble virgin Mary who became the mother of our Lord and both of those women are shining examples of humble faith in God and how God blessed them So the question is, how important is motherhood? How important is it to a woman or to anyone? But 1 Timothy 2.15 says, She will be saved, the women, in childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. The saving role, task, and goal of a godly woman is what? I just read it. It says she will be saved in childbearing if they continue faithless. The role, task, and goal of a godly woman is to bear and raise godly children. Now, I don't think you could get elected dog catcher if you ever gave that answer in a press conference in the U.S. of A. That that should be the goal, the task, and the role of a woman. 1992, older people will remember this. Hillary Clinton. She was asked about her decision to keep practicing law while her husband was governor of Arkansas. Now, this is a famous quote here. This was her answers. They're like, why did you keep practicing law instead of being the first lady of the state of Arkansas? And she says, well, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas. What I decided to do was fulfill my profession, which I entered before my husband was in public life. And that's kind of a slam on traditional motherhood, the traditional role of a mother, isn't it? She's saying, I could have stayed home, baked cookies, and had teas. But she was going to keep on going with her career. Well, let me just say, my wife has a college degree from George Washington University. She was climbing the ladder at Bank One when we met. And now she stays at home. She bakes cookies all the time. I mean, I'm (laughs) telling you, all the time. And she just went to a tea. She did. And so I guess, according to that standard, she is a social misfit, right, and a failure. And I'll tell you this, she'll never get elected president. Doesn't have a chance. In contrast to Hillary Clinton's statements, most people will know who James Dobson is, focus on the family. I liked what he said. He said, there is no more important job in the universe, in the universe, than to raise a child to love God live productively, and serve humanity. Listen to what he said. How ridiculous that a woman should have to apologize for wanting to fulfill that historic role. And I would totally agree with that. Why do we have to be embarrassed or apologize for doing what God has ordained things the way it should be? That's how things are going to work best anyways. So the question, any young lady that's in here that it's not married or a Christian woman has to ask themselves, is this, if I'm committed to governing my life by the word of God, which if you're a Christian, a true Christian, you have, if I'm committed to do his will, what does God say the role, the goals, and the pursuits of a woman should be? So what you have to ask yourself today, I'd like to look at the life of one godly woman in the Bible who's set before us as an example of a godly mother, and that's Hannah, back in 1 Samuel. And we'll read 1 Samuel 1. It says, Now there was a certain man of Ramatham, Zophine, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeruham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was, year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her, and therefore she, Hannah, wept and did not eat. And then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept and anguished. And then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. And then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, which means asked of the Lord, saying, Because I've asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned. Then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. And then the woman stayed. "'Nursed her son until she had weaned him. "'Now when she had weaned him, "'she took him up with her with three bowls, "'one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, "'and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. "'And the child was young. "'And then they slaughtered a bowl, "'brought the child to Eli, and she said, "O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, "'I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. "'For this child I prayed. "'And the Lord has granted me my petition "'which I asked of him.' therefore I also have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives he shall be lent to the Lord so they worshiped the Lord there Hannah was a godly woman and Hannah her name actually means grace but when we first meet her in this story there is no grace in her life because she's barren she's childless and she's tormented by this rival that her husband had married grace was her name i would say and grace it seems to be is what she needed in abundance first samuel we know this it was written during the time of judges spiritual darkness is over the entire land everyone in israel it says did that which was right in his own eyes the priesthood is corrupt eli's two sons they take the lord's offering by force if they have to getting things they shouldn't they're sexual predators and not only that it says in first samuel 3 that the word of the lord was scarce it was rare it really wasn't around there was no word of the lord that's why he raised up samuel but it's a dark time but even in that dark period the bible gives us and this is like for us today we are in a dark time but it gives us many shining bright lights and two women are among the brightest ruth and Hannah, who we're going to talk about. They were both exceptional women by God's grace. Here's what we want to look at. What made the difference in Hannah's life? What made her a godly mother? And I want to look at three things. And the first thing I want to look at is that Hannah had a right relationship with her husband. That is the most important relationship in the home. It's more important, the husband-wife relationship is more important than the parent child relationship you're raising kids you're having children children are keen observers and they're watching us they're watching and learning and they're seeing how husbands and wives relate to each other that's what's going on and so through that you're training your children how you and your husband relate to each other that's how it works they're learning about love forgiveness honesty fairness compassion care for others Or lack of any of that that's what they're learning when they're watching you interact with your spouse because football players sports figures they are not role models they're not the role models actors entertainers are not the role models the god-ordained role models for children are the parents that's just the way it is and you have the most influence over your children whether you believe it or not than anyone else does unless you just give them over but that's the way it is You know, my parents, they weren't born-again Christians, but in many ways they modeled many good traits of what a marriage should be. And they they actually did a lot before I even had read a Bible or whatever. They did a lot to to shape my view of what constitutes a good marriage. So things I remember about my parents, this is not necessarily biblical, but we're saying that you can see what compassion, love, and all. My dad got home basically the same time every single day at 530, and this is one thing that always stuck out to me as a kid growing up. I'm saying kids observe things. But I noticed my parents every day at 530, they would meet in the kitchen. My dad would walk in. He'd give my mom a hug and he'd give her a kiss. That wasn't a long kiss, but it was a kiss. And I noticed that they, they, they like each other. My parents rarely fought. I mean, rarely And the one or two times they did, I was so upset in hearing that. I just wasn't used to that with my parents. That just wasn't what went on in my house. And I know they discussed all the decisions they made together. My dad wasn't a dictator, but he took the lead in the house. But they would discuss all the decisions they made, and they both fulfilled their roles without complaining. And they took responsibility for what their roles did and did a good job at it. And not only that, I could tell growing up and it went on until the day my mom passed away several years ago. But my parents truly liked each other. They really did. My mom thought my dad was funny. I mean, my whole family did. We all thought my dad was funny. Everybody liked my dad. Everybody likes my dad. The other thing I noticed is my parents, they always put the kids needs first they really did in financial just in everything they they looked out for us first and that's the kind of things you observe as a child and then you know if you're modeling what biblically should be a marriage then when your kids get married they're generally going to bring that in if i've noticed that is generally however a kid was raised for good or for bad what they saw in their parents and all that they carry right on into their marriage that seems to be the way it works They had a good husband-wife relationship, and especially how that would affect Samuel and their other children. And they loved each other. We see that if you're looking in 1 Samuel 1, look in verses 4 and 5. It says, whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, she's his favorite. She's the first. He just married Peninnah because he thought he needed to get it. Offspring, And it wasn't coming through Hannah. It says, but to Hannah, he'd give a double portion. Why? For he loved Hannah, even though, it says, although the Lord had closed her womb. He loved her. And we see that she loved him. As you read on, it says there, verse 6, And her rival, Panina also provoked Hannah, her severely, to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her, though. Therefore, Hannah is so upset she's weeping and can't even eat. But look what it says in verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons?' And so Hannah, rather than just getting on him, snapping back at him, what did she do? It says she went on and ate. She arose after they had finished eating and drinking. in Shiloh, she went on and got her composure together because she really liked Elkanah. She did. And she did what she had to do to go on and eat with him. And, you know, he's encouraging her in his clumsy little way. Am I not better to you than ten sons? I mean, that's just a kind of a clumsy way of, of doing all that. But she didn't want to disappoint him, did she? She didn't snap at him. And she's upset. And all of this is caused because he had to go and marry somebody else. She didn't get cheeky with him, gave her composure and ate with him. He loved her, but Elkanah was not the perfect husband, was he? Because, you know, marrying that other woman, you know, it's the same thing that happened between Abraham and Sarah. He's concerned, how am I going to have his baby? So he brings Hagar in the picture and you got problems right away, don't you? Same situation going on here. God in his wisdom has done what? He's ordained one woman for one man with no rivals. So they can do whatever they want to out in Utah. That's not the best way, is it? (laughs) Not the best way. What I'm saying is this arrangement, it wasn't easy for Hannah. It brought persecution onto her, but it didn't seem to affect their relationship. We're talking about mothers on Mother's Day women that is really you think about what how she reacted that is really a testimony isn't it to her as a woman her meekness and humility women got smart back then I'm sure just like they would today but she didn't she didn't at all and they had a good relationship they both loved the Lord I'm saying they had a good husband-wife relationship this is my next point I got three subpoints under they had a good relationship part of that good relationship is they both loved the Lord and that is the key To a successful Christian marriage, it is the most important characteristic, one you can't overlook in a mate. You're not married yet and you're truly born again. You have need to make sure that the person you're going to marry is truly born again and loves the Lord. And I'm not saying in name only. I'm talking about in deed and in truth. And it'll come out. You can't be around somebody too long to find out whether they're really truly born again. The Bible teaches mixed marriages are always a disaster. Whenever believers united to unbelievers, it never turned out well. We talked the other night, Samson and Delilah. That didn't work out real well for Samson. Ahab and Jezebel, she wasn't a good influence. (laughs) That's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? And what about the wisest man in the world, Solomon and company all of his 700 wives and the multitude of concubines it didn't work real well for him compare those people that we know about and they're set there as an example so we can learn from their mistakes that's what it says in 1 corinthians 10 romans 15 but compare those couples we already talked about Zechariah and elizabeth the parents of john the baptist and luke writes this about them and it says they were both righteous before god both of them walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. When God's going to pick a couple that he's going to raise up the greatest prophet of all, he's not setting them in some mixed, messed up marriage, is he? He sets them in a couple that they are walking in righteousness and blameless before the Lord. Does that mean they never missed it? That's not what that's talking about. It's just their heart was to obey the Lord and when they missed it, they repented and got back on the road. That's what it being a Christian or a saved person is. God used them, like I said, to raise the greatest prophet of all. And the same goes for Joseph and Mary. They were both the same way, righteous parents. Observed the law. They're going up to all the feasts that are in Jerusalem when they need to and it says in the Bible that Jesus, after they found him in the temple and what would you do and all that? It said he came back and it says he was subject to them growing up. Well, he's not going to be subject to people that are just totally unregenerate in that sense. Jesus, our Lord, was raised in a godly home. They were godly parents. That is critical. How critical is it that your husband were saying for a woman? that your husband, or it works vice versa, loves the Lord, truly loves the Lord. If you would, turn back to Joshua 23, beginning in verse 9. Joshua told Israel this, he said, For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day one man of you shall chase a thousand for the lord your god is he who fights for you as he promised you don't you want to maintain that where god's on your side and it doesn't matter how big the army coming against you what symptom what sickness whatever's coming against you god is going to fight for you that's what you want and he says therefore verse 11 because of that take careful heed to yourselves that you love the lord your god or else If indeed you go back, cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and do what? Make marriages with them. Isn't that funny? He brings that up. Things are going well, and God's on your side, and you want to keep Him on your side. He's saying the way you're going to do that is then you don't marry the unregenerates, is what he's saying. Don't make marriages with them. Go into them, and they to you, and know for certain... Know for certain, verse 13, that the Lord your God will no longer drive out those nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And I would say that should be warning enough, shouldn't it? That if you're a Christian, a professing Christian, you should only marry a professing Christian christian not just a professing i mean a true christian because there's a everyone's a professing christian practically all right it's still true the command is still current in 2nd corinthians 6 be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and fellowship and communion is what marriage is all about Elkanah, he loved the Lord and he found a wife that loved the Lord, too, or it worked either. However, that worked. But it was a blessing, wasn't it? It's a blessing to both of them. It really was. And that's the way we want our homes to be, don't we? Talking about Mother's Day. Well, you want to have a happy Mother's Day? Marry a godly man. Amen. The second thing is she was willing to submit joyfully. Well, the other thing I want to talk about this a little bit. But I want to hone in on it. Despite her husband's faults, despite the fact he married a woman just for to have a baby, became a rival, one thing we see with Hannah is she never complained. She never ran down Elkanah publicly or privately. Who did she take her complaints to? The Lord. That's who she took her complaints to. The worst thing a wife can do is to run her husband down with others. So what you say, it might be true, but there's only one place to take that trouble to, and that's to the Lord. Proverbs 31 says this, The heart of her husband, speaking of Miss Far above rubies, the heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain, and she does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Instead of allowing her circumstances to overcome her, the circumstances she was in, and she could have blamed her husband for him, couldn't she? Instead, Hannah went to the Lord. And Matthew Henry said this. He's in the mind of Hannah as she's thinking. Do I well to be angry? Do I well to fret? What good does that do me? And so Hannah would have said, instead of binding the burden thus upon my shoulders, had I not better ease myself of it and cast it upon the Lord by prayer? And Henry went on to say, Elkanah had said, Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Which perhaps occasioned Hannah to think within herself, well, whether he be so or not, I don't know whether he's better than ten sons, but she says, God is. And therefore to him, to God, will I apply, and before him will I pour out my complaint and try what relief that will give me. That is a sign of a godly woman. She's not out running her husband down in any respect to other people, no. She's got an issue. It's a legitimate issue. But she's taken it to the Lord, isn't she? She's taken her problem and her situation to the Lord and not anywhere else. The last thing I want to see under that is these two, Hannah and Elkanah, were truly one flesh. And Paul said that husbands should love their wives because they are one flesh. And he said this about that in Ephesians 5. He said no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And I think we see that. Elkanah, we read he loved Hannah. He really did. I think he truly cherished her and was concerned about her. And that's why he gave her not only that double portion, but he's saying, what's wrong, Hannah? He's concerned. He's showing that. I don't like to see you weeping. When we know the Lord's concerned about us and we're not struggling with does he love me or not, And is he out for my good? When you're not struggling with that, doesn't that make your day go a whole lot better, make it a whole lot easier to believe the Lord? And it's the same for a woman. It's the same for Hannah here. She can be secure in the fact that she knows Elkanah loves her, has her best interest in heart. Her burden is his burden. Amen. And I think that's what husbands, we need to let our wives know we love them, not just by every day saying it or whatever, however that works out, but by demonstrating it. And that's doing the things that aren't convenient, but to let them know that you cherish them, your wife. Go back to 1 Samuel. The second point I want to make is she had a right relationship with her husband, but secondly, she had a right relationship with, with God. And I would say really that right relationship with God is really the number one thing in importance. And the way we see that is that Hannah, she didn't long and cry out for a child because she was barren, because she wants to raise a prince, a rich farmer, someone to bring her, you know, fame and glory. She didn't ask for this child. It wasn't for selfish reasons that she asked for the child. She simply wanted to glorify God and enjoy his blessing on her life. She knew the Bible. She knew having children and raising godly seed was God's best for her. And Psalm twenty-seven three says children are a heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is what? It says it's his reward. What I'm saying is that's the norm. Some women are called to be single. We know that. 1 Corinthians 7. And some never have children for whatever reason. There are some exceptions, but the thing is, they are the exceptions. That's not the norm. And I read this. I thought this was good. A truly godly mother, a woman with the heart of a mother, as God would give a mother a heart, is one who longs to have a child, a passion for children, seeing a child as a gift from God, a special blessing of his love a fulfillment of the divine intention for women and certainly a hope for the next generation to raise a godly seed. So what's the purpose of man? The Westminster Confession says to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And for a woman, that means having children and raising them as godly seed to give to the Lord. And that's no small task, is it? No small task at all the second thing this relationship with god she had her life is characterized by prayer and look in verse 10 look what it says here in verse 10 it says that she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the lord and wept in anguish down in verse 12 then it says and it happened as she continued praying before the lord that eli watched her mouth now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk and put your wine away from you? But we know she wasn't drunk. So she wasn't just praying formal prayers, was she? This wasn't out of some prayer book. She is pouring out her heart and her soul before the Lord, weeping. And I'm saying there is nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. God seals our tears in a bottle, it says, and remembers them. That's Psalm 56.8. David wrote, you have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Women, men, all of us, have you ever had a dark night where you just are tossing around in your bed, praying, crying, no sleep, only prayer? I think all of us can relate to that. In Psalm 39, 12, it says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. The Bible's telling us clearly that when we pray from our hearts with tears that God hears, doesn't He? He doesn't ignore that. 2 Kings 20, Isaiah, he goes to Hezekiah. He says, set your house in order for you're going to die and not live. And it says this, Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall, prayed to the Lord saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And it says, Hezekiah wept bitterly. And Isaiah came back and it says, And the Lord said to Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. And he said, Surely I will heal you. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. He didn't just say he heard his prayer. I've seen your tears. And he says, surely I will heal you. And Matthew Henry said of Hannah's prayer of weeping and anguish, he said the prayer came from her heart as the tears came from her eyes. So God, our God, is not a God of stone. That's what the idols are. Our God is not a God of tune. He's moved. This isn't a prayer and a cry of despair. This was just a prayer that was honest she was honest about where she was at. It was open, but she was also trusting that God was the one to go through and he is the one that could take care of her problem. And he did answer her prayer. Look down at verse 17. When Eli answered and said, she says, I've just spoken in my complaining and grief. And Eli answered, verse 17, go in peace, the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman, she went her way and ate And her face, it says, was no longer sad. So Eli is a backslidden priest. His whole family's backslidden. But Hannah knew that he was the high priest. He represented God. And just like in the day when Jesus, the high priest, spoke then, that he still prophesied, didn't he? Even though he was a total heathen. And Eli was was not in good shape safe spiritually, but he's speaking. And she took that as the voice of the Lord. When she heard His voice and the words He said, that was the voice of God. And it witnessed in her heart of faith that that was God speaking. And we know that because why? You don't ever read of her. All the crying's over with. She knew God had heard her cry and answered her prayer. And that was His voice speaking to her through Eli. She had her answer. She didn't need to go anymore before the Lord. No more crying, no more whatever. She had the answer. And it came. My last point under this, she had a good relationship with God. She was also a woman of thankful praise. Because when that answer came, when it was manifested, it came right here when Eli spoke, and she knew it. She had it. She wasn't waiting anymore for it. It was just when was it going to be manifested. She had the answer. But when little Samuel was born, Hannah acknowledges that with grateful praise, what God had done for her. And if you'll look in chapter (laughs) 2, this to me is one of the greatest prayers Of praise you will ever read and beginning in verse one it says hannah prayed and said my heart rejoices in the lord my horn is exalted in the lord i smile at my enemies because i rejoice in your salvation and we sing this song no one is holy like the lord she said for there is none besides you nor is there any rock like our god amen And she says, Talk no more so very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble the lord kills and he makes alive he brings down to the grave and brings up the lord makes poor and he makes rich he brings low and lifts up he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory to me that is just a great prayer i just love that section right there probably one of my best sections of the bible She's singing praise because she knew her life and her heart was dead and barren. Dead and barren, her womb. Yet God had given her life, not only in spirit, but also in her womb. She'd been laid low in the dust by all that persecution from Panina, In the dust, in the ash heap. And yet, as she says here in this praise, God raised her up. God did it. He didn't leave her there. And we know that in the New Testament, James says, we sing the song... Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And Hannah had to do that in many ways we've seen. And what does it say he'll do? The Lord will lift you up. And when he lifts us up, what should follow is our praise should be lifted up too, shouldn't it? We shouldn't be like the nine lepers that were unthankful. To me, you compare this prayer here that she prayed. It's a praise song or prayer, whatever, with what Mary saying to Luke 1, I mean, they are both to me just very encouraging and the most beautiful, eloquent, God-exalting prayers you'll ever hear because she's not only exalting His purity, His mercy, and also His power. All of that is being exalted in this prayer. And you know what? Notice here, there is not a word in this song of praise about a son, is there? Not a thing. Because she's consumed with what? It was what consumed her all along, with glorifying the God of heaven. She wasn't consumed with the gift. Oh, she loved her son. We'll see that in a second. Oh, she loved and adored him. But more than that, she wasn't just after the gift. Who was her heart really towards? It was the giver, wasn't it? And that's the way it's got to be. So I was talking with somebody the other day at lunch, and I'm like, if you're going to turn a faith message, which I don't like that phrase, message. We're, we're not following a message, are we? We're following the Lord. When you make a message to where if I do one, two, three, four, five, something's going to happen, it's over. The principles are all valid and good, and they need to be in place. If you're not following them, it's like something's up. But what's that telling you is there's something wrong between you and the Lord. We're not believing a message per se, right? We're trusting the living God. Yeah. Amen when he becomes our desire what we're after he's the one the living God whom we're looking that we need a touch from he'll give it to us and you're looking to get your life right before him and the principles are fine I'm not in any way trust what I'm saying I'm not in any way putting that down But it's the living God that needs to touch us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Those people in the Bible had no principles taught them. All they knew is, I know this much that God Almighty has the power to heal me. And he's here walking in the flesh and he can give me what I need. Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus would say, what principles do you need to follow? Now, he never said that. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, that I could have my sight. And He's going to be the one to give it to us, isn't he? And then to him, it's like that we talked about that woman with the bowed back. When he gives it then, what's her thing? She's like I said, she wasn't complaining how long her back was bowed or anything else. She's glorifying God, it says. Praise God for what he's done. It's worth it all. Amen. 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 That's the God we serve. The last point here is that Hannah was a godly woman. This is a short one because of her right relationship at home. Look over in verses 21 to 23. Look what it says. It says, Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah didn't go up. For she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned. And then I'll take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. And the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And here's the point we're seeing there is her children were her priority and at this time it's Samuel. It wasn't that far away. It wasn't like it was like a 100-mile journey for them to go up there and visit the tabernacle and make those sacrifices. It was mandatory for the men. It wasn't for the women. But she was glad to go and do that. But it was only 10 miles away. But at this point, her priority was what we're talking about. We're clear back at the beginning of the message. Her priority was home and her child. Not like today, where daycares abound. Daycares abound. I mean, Hannah wasn't going to go take her kid to the Jerusalem daycare. She says, no, I'm going to be with him until he's weaned. No one else is going to nurse this baby but me. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't know any kids in daycare (laughs) that I can think of. Stay-at-home moms were the norm when I was growing up, and it hadn't been that long ago. And my mom was involved in school. I keep hating to bring up my mom, but she was a good mother in a lot of ways. She had dinner cooked every night. She took care of cleaning the house, always did the laundry, was on top of the laundry. My memory of my mom was she was home taking care of the home. It's not like she never left or did anything else. You yeah, know, But I'm saying that's my memory, home taking care of business. I never came home to an empty house. I don't think it hurt me any. And Hannah said, I'm not going up there till I've weaned this boy. That's my priority And while she's doing that, the other thing is she's instructing Samuel, probably from as soon as he came out, instructing him in the ways of the Lord and the word of the Lord. So they're saying a child back then, they're gauging what with all this means, all the commentaries or whatever, that Samuel could have been as young as three years old. That was typically when they would wean someone in Israel at that time. He could have been anywhere between three and 10 years old. No one knows for sure. And you're saying, well, how much of the word could a three year old have learned? Let me tell you this. My daughter's babysit, I believe, is he three? Three years old. This kid's three years old. My daughter's babysit, a young boy, three years old. He can swing a golf club better than I can, and he can name every club in the bag. Now, I'm saying if a three year old can do that, I think a three year old could learn scripture from his mother. I really do. Praise the Lord. She had an influence on him. She made that her priority to be there to take care of him, to nurse him and to raise him just like Timothy had from his grandmother and his mother. They're working on him with the scriptures. Charles Spurgeon wrote this in his autobiography. I thought this was pretty good. He said fathers and mothers are the most natural agents for God to use in the salvation of their children. He said, I'm sure that in my early youth, no teaching ever made such an impression upon my mind as the instruction of my mother. Neither can I conceive that to any child there can be one who will have such an influence over the young heart as the mother who has so tenderly cared for her offspring. I thought this is typical Spurgeon. He says, a man with a soul so dead as to not to be moved by the sacred name of mother is creation's blot. He said, never could it be possible for any man to estimate what he owes to a godly mother. Now here, sisters, was your chance one more time. I'll read it again. Never could it be possible for any man to estimate what he owes to a godly mother. Amen. Certainly I have not the powers of speech, Spurgeon says, with which to set forth my valuation of the choicest blessings which the Lord bestowed on me in making me the son of one who prayed for me and prayed with me. He said, how can I ever forget her tearful eye when she warned me to escape the wrath to come? I thought her lips right eloquent. Others might not think so, but they certainly were eloquent to me. How can I ever forget when she bowed her knee and with her arms about my neck prayed, oh, that my son might live before thee. Nor can her frown be stricken from my memory, that solemn, loving frown when she rebuked my budding iniquities. And her smiles have never faded from my recollection, the beaming of her countenance when she rejoiced to see some good thing in me towards the Lord God of Israel. Now that's a testimony, and man, there's a mother there. Was she wasting her time, spending time raising Charles Spurgeon? And there's a lot of testimonies of godly women that have poured their heart and lives into a son, and they were poor, they would have seemed like a bunch of nobodies, and that son God used and raised up because of the influence of that mother to have an influence on multitudes. Amen? Abraham Lincoln said, All that I am or hope to be I owe to my angel mother. And he said, No man is poor who has a godly mother. No man is poor who has a godly mother. So let me just end with this question. Are you a godly mother? Or if you're a young unmarried woman, are your goals to be a godly mother? If you're a Christian... I would say our goals should be the same as the Lord's. And we find that out through his word, don't we? That's how we find it out. And since it's Mother's Day, young people in here, and it could be old people too, do you honor your mother? Not just today, but every day. That's why I'm not big on special occasions. We should be honoring our parents and especially our mothers every day, shouldn't we? Amen. Amen. Let's pray amen hallelujah father we thank you lord for the godly women that you've put before us in the bible that we can see how they live their faith their trust their commitment their humility we thank you for all of that lord and i thank you for the godly women that we have here in this body lord i ask you'll continue to bless them and i pray for the husbands that that we learn to love our wives properly lord and and to pray for them and to help them even spiritually, Lord, and to be the heads of our house. And thank you for these sisters that are truly a blessing in so many ways. As ask you'll continue to bless them, and especially today, and that your spirit will rest upon them, and, and that truly they can be a Proverbs 31, woman far above rubies. And I thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for your faithfulness and your love to us. And we do all that in Jesus' name. Amen.